can have a seat. First day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say this to the owner of the house that he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God and was returning to God. When the meal was finished, he got up and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. After he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you this morning in worship and time together. Uh, I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm I'm especially glad to be here because transparently, full transparency, I didn't know if I was going to be here this morning because uh, I'm on baby watch. My wife and I are expecting. Some of you might know that, so we're we're waiting for that moment. We're waiting for that call. So if I have to go running off the platform up to the hospital, forgive me. God is good. It it will carry on. Okay, Uh, but we're on baby watch, and for us, that means welcoming a new one into the world. It means back to the world of uh, diapers and sleepless nights. Y'all remember some of those parents out there? Yeah, we're excited for that. We're, we're anticipatory for that. But this will be new for us and our family, yeah, specifically new in that we have a two-year-old already at home, our, our daughter Annalise. And so the real person who's got a lot coming for them is not mom and dad, is Annalise. Up till now, she's had mom and dad's total, complete, utter attention. Y'all feel me? You know what I'm talking about? And then we're going to bring this little bundle home and say, you have a sister. And she's going to say, what? And give us that look. Like, what, do you, what does that mean? That things are going to change? I feel like as a parent, part of my duty, part of my responsibility, part of what, what, what God has asked of me to do for my daughter, Annalise, is teach her a very difficult lesson. 
The lesson is simple, but it's one that we continue to wrestle with even as adults. And it's the one that she's going to learn very quick, very fast, and that is the world does not turn around you, just you. There are more people and more things and realities in this world. I hate to break it to you, Annalise, but the world is a lot bigger, and it no longer just revolves around you. You guys ever have that? You slip into that mentality where you start finding yourself thinking the world revolves around you? Yeah, we do that as adults even. But when we step back and we look at the world and we look at our lives and we begin to look at a broader narrative, a broader understanding of history and more specifically the biblical story, we have to wrestle with that very difficult hard fact up front that we are actually not the main character of the story. The main character, the hero, the one who is the primary actor and primary mover in all of history is God. God is the primary main character whom this story is ultimately about. He is the hero. Uh, History itself is his story. Let me say that again. History is his story. God is the main character. And we've been traveling now through his story for quite some time, learning about him, getting to know him, his thoughts, his actions, his activities, what he did in the beginning and what he has done since the beginning, how he created and how his creation has made mistakes, how we as part of that creation have run away, we have abandoned God, we've done a lot of silly things, and yet God and his story is about his pursuit of us, how he keeps chasing after us, and his unending love for us. And that love would drive him to come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. That God's story would lead him to a decisive moment where he says, I'm going to come and dwell among my people in my pursuit of them, in my desire to reconcile and call them back to me, in my desire to know them and have them know me, I'm going to show up in a physical, tangible, fleshy body. So that's what he does in the person of Jesus. And we've been traveling more closely with the story of Jesus these past weeks, his ministry, his miracles, God wrapped in flesh, preaching and teaching and speaking to the hearts and the lives of people and letting them know that God loves them and desires to be close to them. And last week, we saw how that person, Jesus Christ, had a definitive shift in his story where he now began to travel to a city called Jerusalem, knowing full well that there was something significant and difficult waiting him in Jerusalem. As a Christian people, we recognize that the cross and his crucifixion was waiting for him in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, as the Scripture says. He set his feet and his path and his direction there. 
this is the climax of the story. Everything so far has been leading up to this moment, this time, this holy experience. We sometimes call it Holy Week, a week that is holy in that it is set aside for special significance. It's made holy by the fact that Christ and what he did, his, his mission, his purpose, and everything was brought to this kind of one central moment, this one week. The week began with Palm Sunday. You guys ever heard of Palm Sunday before? You guys ever hear about that? Sometimes called triumphal procession. It's where churches run around with palms in our hands. We wave them in the air. We yell, Hosanna. We revisit the story of how we entered the city. After Jesus entered the city, he spent some time preaching. He spent some time teaching and being with the people. And eventually, uh, come Thursday, he gathered with those who are closest to him, his disciples, and he gathered with them in an upper room. And you heard it read as part of the story that he broke bread with them and he shared wine with them and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he said, I have come not to be king and lord and master in a traditional sense, but to serve, to serve you and to serve humanity out of love for you. And he washed their feet. Following that, he got his disciples together and said that he was burdened in his heart and he desired to pray. And so he took his disciples to a specific spot out in the middle of the dead of night and they prayed. Jesus got on his knees and he spent time praying, asking God to encourage him, to fortify him, to strengthen him for what faced him, the cross that was right in front of him. He even said, Lord, if there's another way, if we could do a different, if we could pull an audible right now, that'd be great, God, but not my will your will be done, God. And at that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, in that place and time, Judas, one of his previous followers, one of his followers that had betrayed him, brought temple guards, he brought Roman guards, and they arrested Jesus. They dragged him to a local jail, and from the jail he bounced around to a couple different courts. He went to a couple different places where local rulers were allowed to rule and, and judge him in a trial. Through that process, he eventually ended up at a famous guy named Pontius Pilate. You guys heard of Pontius Pilate before? Local Roman governor, kind of the ultimate power, if you will, at that point in time in the political system. Pontius Pilate has him whipped. He has him flogged. He places, places a crown of thorns on his head, a robe of purple around him. He abuses him. And the guards spit at him and slap him. And in the end, he turns him back over to the Jewish people and says, isn't this enough? And the Jewish say, no. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so, they place a cross on his shoulders and he drags the cross up a hill, a hill called Golgotha, the skull. And there on that hill, he hangs on a cross and he dies. Our hero, the main character, the one that, that the story is ultimately about, for all intents and purposes, it looks as though his story comes to an end as he gives up his final breath and dies. They, they don't even need to check 
and break his legs or anything. They know he's dead, so they pull him down and they put him in a tomb and they roll a big stone in front of the tomb. And Jesus, the one whom this story is ultimately about, is lying dead. And it looks like it's the end of the story. Lying in death. Now, I have an asterisk on the screen. We're going to talk about that more fully next week. We're going to have some Easter celebration coming next week. So it means you'll all be here because everybody comes on Easter, right? (laughs) But for this week, it's the cross. It's it's death. It's not praise God, hallelujah. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. As the hero that we expected to win dies. It is the end of the story. It makes sense that we talk about our lives in terms of story. That makes sense because we we go through life and we experience things, challenges, trials, joys, triumphs. And it makes sense because eventually each one of us has that moment in time where death comes. And it is the end of the story where we live out our days and we come to that place, we come to that time. Sometimes even our days and our chapters are cut short. And the end comes early. Sometimes we live full, long, healthy, vibrant lives, but make no mistake, just as Jesus is laid in the tomb, we are laid down as well. I had a funeral earlier this week that I got to officiate. I got to step into the lives of some of our people in a close and meaningful way. They had lost someone. Someone had died. It was the end of this person's story, and there was no mistaking that it was the end as you are staring at him laying in a casket. As the family is standing next to me, weeping and crying, grieving, they're grieving the death and the end of the story of someone that they had shared memories with, that they had done life with, and whom they had loved. And out of love for this person, they wanted this person's life to continue. But death put an end to his story. That's what death does. It ends things. Death kills things. Death comes in a very real way, laying in a casket, 
ashes in an urn. We cannot avoid it. We cannot ignore it. But there is also more depth and more understanding. There is a broader sense and width of what death can mean and look like in our lives even. There are other things that bring about ends and death and destruction in our own personal lives and in this world more than just simply laying in a casket. Relationships can end. They can die and you can lose them. Dreams, they can die and you can lose them. Aspirations, hope, self-value, a sense of self and the encouragement and the confidence that comes with being a person can die. Work and vocations, callings, death can kill those things too. For as much as we have a hero in the person of Jesus Christ and the main character, we also have a villain. The reality that there are forces at work in this world that bring about the end, death and destruction, evil, and we house that under the, the umbrella, the villain of the devil. And make no mistake, the devil is seeking to cause and bring about death in your life and through your life. He's trying to work things into your life that wreak destruction and havoc. Things like greed, jealousy, low self-esteem, lies, words that come out of our mouths, guilt, shame. They wear us down until death. And yet... Just as that family that I was spending time with, that I was crying with and speaking with and being with, wanted out of love for the life to continue for those that they had lost, the same is true for God. He wants out of his love life to continue on. God is not a God of death seeking to bring about shame and guilt and frustration in your life. God doesn't take pleasure in those, those hang-ups and those hurts that you carry with you. God is a God who, out of love for you, desires life. He created you. He started life. Life was his idea to begin with. And his satisfaction, his joy, what he loves is your life. You may not always love your life, but God does. He loves you and your life, the life that you are living, even with its hurts, even with its hang-ups, even with its mistakes, even with the moments and the times where we allow the devil and his destruction and death to take a hold of us, where we do silly and stupid things that we regret, that cause death and destruction, God still loves. God still forgives. God still pursues you. 
calling you, wooing you, beckoning you, and desiring that your life and your story continue on. He doesn't want an end to your life. He wants your life to go on forever and be what it could be. Some of us, we, we, we look at God with this baggage that we come, come, comes with our life, whether it's something that we did, whether it's something even that a church did, whether it's something that another Christian did, and we look at God and we have trouble understanding him and whether or not he could truly love us and whether or not he could truly forgive us. And God, do you really even appreciate my life? I mean, how could you? But Jesus Christ, our hero, he loved and loves you and your life to the point of being willing to sacrifice his own life so that your life could be what it could be and continue on even beyond death. Jesus was willing to tackle that villain, death. He was willing to kill death. Death needed to die, and the only way that death could die was for Christ, our hero, to die himself, giving us his own life, sacrificing his life because of his overwhelming desire to see your life continue and not end. I mean, you might be bummed out that the world doesn't revolve around you. You might be bummed out that you are not ultimately the main character of history. But make no mistake, the main character of history, God, his motive, his desires and his love and his passion and what he is zealous about is your life. It is your story. You and your story and the possibility of what could happen in and through your life, that is God's motive for taking upon himself death and beginning to undo the pain and the suffering that comes with death. Your story, it matters. It matters because it matters to God and Jesus. So much so that he would be willing to sacrifice his life that your life could continue. Even beyond a casket, even beyond an urn, even beyond friction and the words that are exchanged and relationships that die, even beyond sickness and disease, Christ has done this so that your life goes on. He says it like this in John. My purpose, my desire, my hope, my purpose, my mission, what I'm here for, what gets me out of bed in the morning, Jesus says my purpose is to give people you a rich and satisfying life 
I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd is willing to sacrifice his life for the sheep. I'm willing to sacrifice my life that you might experience life that is rich and satisfying and not be burdened by the things of your past, overwhelmed by things of the present, but instead be the person who lives life to the fullest in the future. You say, Pastor Andrew, that sounds really great. I just don't know, though. I'm not so sure. I got a whole lot of junk in my background. There's no way God can love my story. It's way too messy. It's way too broken. My story? Uh-uh. God don't want to get near that. And besides, it's not like I'm a, I'm, I'm a good disciple. It's not like I'm one of the original 12. The big guys, the super apostles, those guys are awesome. They had it together. They walked with Jesus. They broke bread with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They knew who he was and what his mission was. I'm no super Christian, super apostle like the 12. Jesus in the garden is with the 12. Before the cross, just before the cross, And he's on his knees and he's praying. And he's praying for all of his disciples. All his disciples. Asking that they would have a sense of his love and that they would live into the life that he is purchasing for them in the cross. And he says this on his knees. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, the ones that fell, the super apostles that fell asleep on him a couple feet away. I'm praying not only for them, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That means you. That means Jesus and the cross and the sacrifice of his life and his desire that you live life and not end. It is for you. It is for you. Your story is his motive to embracing the cross and welcoming death so your story could be, even beyond death, something magnificent and wonderful. From the cross itself, he says this, John 20, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. That's what John says. As Christ is hanging upon the cross, giving up his final breaths, achieving and winning life for you and me, our hero's mission had been fulfilled. His desire, his purpose, and his mission of ensuring that your story could continue was accomplished through the cross. Another way of saying it is this. Christ's story, our hero's story, the main character's story, it ultimately points to you and your story and creates a way for you to live your life in a new way 
confident that even though there might be things in your life that die, that we ourselves one day will lay in a casket, that our hope and our future and our life is secure through his death and resurrection. Christ is giving you his own life. And in the week ahead, you don't live your own life. You live Christ's life. You live literally for him. The decisions you make, the people you interact with, the way that you look at your spouse, the way that you interact with your children, the way that you relate to your coworkers, the values that you have, the priorities that you have, the way that you think, the way that you act, the way that you speak, the way you live your life. It is the life that Christ gives you, one for you, a life that he desires for you. He doesn't want your life to end. He wants you to live life abundantly, richly. Take satisfaction in the life that is laid before you. For Christ in his life was given up that you might live it, that you could live your story. Now, it's true that next week I'll see you all again and we'll talk about Easter. We'll talk about the new chapter that Christ began for his own life. But for the moment, for this week, I exhort you, I beg you, Live this next week. Live this next week knowing that Christ gave you life and desires your story to be rich and satisfying. And he was willing to end his story so that your story could continue. Even things that might be dead ends in your life right now. He can bring about life in those cracks and those crevices. And he was willing to go to the cross to ensure it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ongoing story, for the biblical narrative and story that has captured our hearts and our minds and our attention these weeks. For in it, we begin to see and know and understand how you love us. You love us with such a desperate love, such a desperate love that desires our life to continue vibrantly, richly, with satisfaction, not deterred by the things that creep in and cause death and destruction, not letting our attention and focus be on those things, but instead our focus being on the life that you have given us to live. You so desire this for us that you would go to a cross and kill death. You would give us your life. And for that, we give our thanks. Humble our hearts this week.
as we walk with you in this part of the story. And make us ever aware and ever conscious of the life that you have given each one of us to live. May our lives be sheltered within your promise and your gift and your cross. Jesus, it's in your name we do indeed pray. Amen.